welcome to And Introducing, a podcast about words, about music. I'm Chris Wade. And I'm Molly O'Brien. And this is We Podicano, an Our Band Could Be Your Life miniseries. We are taking a journey through Michael Azarat's chronicle of the 1980s American underground rock scene, continuing today with Chapter 7, Sonic Youth. Rising out of the miasma of the no-wave New York downtown art scene, Sonic Youth was built around the guitar experimentations of Thurston Moore and Lee Ronaldo, coupled with the cool bass of Kim Gordon to create some of the most fascinatingly abrasive rock of the era. Expertly navigating the growing infrastructure of indie rock and constantly honing their experimental sound, Sonic Youth eventually completed their lineup with drummer Steve Shelley and accomplished the impossible, a successful jump to the major labels. And today we'll kill all our idols, talking all things Sonic Youth from Chapter 7 of Our Band Could Be Your Life. Yeah! But first, let's introduce our guest. She's an editor at Textless Monthly and has previously written for The New Yorker, NPR Music, and WNYC. It's Paula Maya. Hello, and welcome to the show, Paula. Thank you so much for joining us to talk youth. Yeah, thank you for having me. Looking forward to talking all things youth. <laughs> Hell yeah. Uh, so we usually start this show by going around and uh, kind of talking about our priors with the band what uh what brought you to sonic youth like how'd you first get into them like what part have they played in your life if at all yeah so i grew up in houston um which is a massive city and is very isolating uh in general but especially when you're a teenager and you can't drive and mm. so i would spend a lot of time at my local Barnes and Noble and I would literally sit in a corner with spin and enemy and nylon and just read there until it was nine o'clock and they told me to leave. So <laughs> <laughs> what I would do is like, I loved reading these music magazines and I feel like I learned so much about culture this way about American pop culture in particular, like my family immigrated from Bogota, Colombia in the 1980s. And so like there were a lot of facets of how I grew up that, were maybe incongruous with how I was growing up in Texas. And so I think like a lot of, you know, second generation kids, I always struggled to make sense of that. Um, and so I learned a lot about U.S. pop culture through that. And when I was a teenager, I was interested in, in art and music and film. Um, and I would see again and again in these music magazines that bands that were cool cited Sonic Youth. And I didn't know what that was. And so I remembered that. And then there was this great, chain of bookstores around Texas called Half Price Books. And they have really cheap used books. And I think they're in some other states too, but they're, they have a big presence here in Texas and they certainly We did. definitely like, had those. Yeah. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah. But certainly like in the mid 2000s, like there were a ton of them. And what I would do is I would go to Half Price and their UCDs were so cheap. And so what I would do is I would just look for CDs that sounded cool or interesting or that I the name sounded familiar because I had seen it in spin or something. And I had no idea what any of this sounded like. I mean, back then this was like, I wasn't super into, um, I guess like iTunes hadn't really taken off at that point. And so like a lot of discovery about music still was very analog in that way. And so mm. I, I would just go to half price and pick up different CDs. And one time I bought daydream nation and I was like, this seems cool. What is this about? Um, I think I was maybe 16 and I had just gotten my permit and was driving around <laughs> with my mom or another adult in the car. <laughs> and um, this, this music was so, well, first off, I had never heard anything like it before. Secondly, 
you spend a lot of time behind the wheel in Houston and there's like, there are a lot of freeways and the textures of the city were just really complementary to the chaos of what Sonic Youth was doing on that album. And so, I, I mean, it was fascinating because I was like, I don't know if this is good, but it's like, <laughs> it's just fascinating. And even I've listened to that album so many times and even years later, I, I feel surprised by it. So um, I would say that that was my introduction to Sonic Youth. I'm sure driving around Houston listening to a song off that album called The Sprawl felt particularly like, <laughs> oh, this is this is right for what's going on right now. Totally. Yeah. And just Silver Rocket, like you're just rocketing down yes. those like six lane freeways. Like it just uh, it just feels right. Hell yeah. Uh, Molly, do you have any uh, uh, Sonic Youth passers? It, I feel I feel almost like I'm teasing you doing these now because <laughs> your answer well, this, is. I mean, Sonic Youth is actually one of the bands that I have. Uh, Paul, I've like <laughs> every, every time we've done the like little roundtable at the beginning of these. A lot of times, the band I've listened to for the first time after reading the book <laughs> and being oh, like, nice. oh, "Okay, uh, what's that all about?" But um, no, I I actually I I found Sonic Youth I think very similarly to you in that I usually read about music in magazines when I was a teenager before I could buy it because you couldn't just like, you know, limited money meant you couldn't just like buy whatever tunes you wanted and reading about, you know, music in spin rolling stone, et cetera. Like the influential band was Sonic youth. And they like kind of jab at that at the end of the chapter that everyone talks about them being like experimental or not experimental, uh, uh, influential but like no one asked why, but they just kind of like take it as like a yeah. given. Um, but it's true that like it's they're just sort of like one of the like base notes of like alternative music through like from the 80s through the 90s. But when I finally decided to spend money on a Sonic Youth CD, it was in Walmart and uh, it was super on sale. But the album was uh, Experimental Jet Set Trash and No Star. Which <laughs> oh, wow. I listened to it and I was like, all right, like totally. <laughs> I see. I see. This is definitely a vibe. Like I think I'm maybe picking up what uh, what they're putting down. Didn't love the album honestly very much. And it wasn't until later that I kind of got more internet access that I could get into the rest of the catalog. But I did love Bull and the Heather. That that I I fucked with heavy. Um, but yeah, that was my intro to Sonic Youth. And of course, I was definitely aware of Kim Gordon as a girl in the band uh, as a, as a girl <laughs> myself. <laughs> I'm having such a hard time imagining like experimental jet set and trash star, like at Walmart, like those, I know it is so <laughs> diametrically opposed from one another. That's I was definitely browsing probably while uh, a parent was shopping and was definitely at that point very like indie minded or like whatever. And I was looking for, I was definitely just like combing the racks being like, what's the most, you know, underground shit at Walmart. And they stocked it. It was very weird. It's, it's a true testament to the wild rev music business revolution of the nineties that between what we'll read about them going through in like the eighties to like 13 years later, you being able to find that Sonic youth album in a Vermont Walmart. Yeah. The only Vermont Walmart. They only have one there. <laughs> uh, anyway, I'll I'll do myself really quick. I I was became aware of them more. I, I I was ambiently aware that they were like a cool band. I probably saw them on that fucking Simpsons episode that they cameo on, mm -hmm. uh, the oh, Lollapalooza right. one. Uh, but I was aware of them being a cool band. But my 
one of my roommates when I lived in my apartment in college was really into Sonic Youth. Uh, and we were kind of different sides of the same coin because I had been on a big like no wave kick and I was really into the no New York noise compilation album that has a bunch of the like immediately pre Sonic Youth uh, no wave bands. But mm-hmm. my uh, roommate was into Sonic Youth, but I think rather humorously, rather than being into like the quote unquote college rock Sonic Youth albums like Goo and later, mm-hmm. uh, he was really into, uh, you know, like eat evil and before so he would just be like sitting in his room playing guitar to like uh kill your idols all the time which is just like and then like trying to do the insane weird tuning bands like for hours on end uh so i i didn't really even know about their like more um music festival arena rock songs until much later um but but i had always kind of known them as like oh yeah they're the um they're the no wave band that's not funky. <laughs> a, f- a funkless, a funkless wave. Yes, the the funk, the funkless wave. Sure. But of course, then I read this book and uh, you know, put on cool thing and was like, oh yes, yeah. So should we dive into the story of Sonic Youth? Let's dive in. Let's, Let's do, do it. it. So yeah, the you know, the, I think this is the first New York City band in the book. Uh, we've been in California. We've been in the Midwest. And now we're in good old NYC. So yeah, as we were variously saying, uh, punk and new wave gave birth to no wave. The funny thing about that that no wave uh, compilation that you mentioned, Azarad in the book basically says that the compilation itself killed the no wave music scene because people felt left out. Like <laughs> certain bands were not included in it, which is just an amazing act of sort of like uh, self-destruction by by selection that I've just really enjoyed. Yes. Um, I'm just yeah. like so I, I love imagining like the dinosaur L guys just being so mad at DNA. I would have loved to have read more about that. I mean, that, <laughs> yeah, that such an amazing detail of like a scene that is by nature so rebellious that it it implodes upon itself, like because <laughs> because there's just feelings about the compilation. Yeah, I I would read a lot more about that for sure. That needs an oral history. I feel with totally. maybe some some uh, feelings. <laughs> Some some bitter feelings. Um, so yeah, that's that's the scene that uh, Sonic bir- Sonic Youth kind of gets birthed from. Uh, Thurston Moore, low key Florida guy. Uh, <laughs> we what Chris and I were in Florida a while ago. This is like pre pandemic, of course, and driving through Florida and just like trying to list as many Florida guys as we could. Um, but definitely did not list Thurston Moore. Uh, Florida and Bethel, Connecticut. He was uh, he grew up in. Well, well, it's just funny putting him in the context of the other Florida musicians, like uh, uh, Tom Petty, <laughs> Tom Petty, Fred Durst. Yeah, <laughs> Thurston oh, Moore. Right. Like, what brings all these people together? The overwhelming <laughs> energy of Florida. Yeah, it's very powerful. Um, and he he went to uh, Western Connecticut State University for like a hot second, and then immediately moved to New York City in 1977, which was just peak. New York City punk time, which he totally got into. And he joined a band called The Coachmen, which uh, is cited as a kind of talking heads television 
second tier sort of band. Um, and that's where he struck up a friendship with Lee Ronaldo, who was in a band called The Flux, which is a the Fluxus, which is a <laughs> Fluxus art movement reference because sure. that's the kind of vibe that's <laughs> happening there. And then uh, Thurston was like jamming with some people and through one of those jamming friends met Kim Gordon. Kim's from California, moved to New York City after going to art school and was kind of like curating gallery shows. So she wasn't a musician yet, but she was a visual arts person, which I think was important just for kind of where the scene settled. Um, So Kim and Thurston immediately vibed. They started a band called the Arcadians. They invited Lee to join uh, and they uh, were looking for a drummer. This is a very drummer revolving door band. Um, (laughs) But everyone else, I think, stays the same, right? The central yeah. three are the same all the way through. Thank God. <laughs> Otherwise, <laughs> I'd be I'd be totally screwed. Oh, and the other detail about Lee is that he, um, previously to joining Sonic Youth, he played in uh, Glenn Branca's guitar sextet, which is something that I had not been familiar with, but I guess it was, as Azarad described it, it was a, minimali- a kind of minimalist heavy metal. So uh, it just sounds like an insane kind of proto-noise band in a way. I, I would actually love to play something because both Lee and Thurston were involved with Glenn Branca at a, at a certain point. So I'd love to play some some Glenn Branca sure. um, tracks because I think this helps make a lot of sense of kind of where Sonic Youth originally came from. Um, this is off the New York Noise compilation. This is Glenn Branca's lesson number one for electric, electric guitar. And I'm going to have to skip around here a little bit because this is like eight minutes long and it kind of slowly develops. But I think it'll, you'll get a sense of it. Uh, Paul, let me know if you can hear this when I start playing. kind of a banger, surprisingly. I've been pointing at everything and saying that's like Andrew WK, but this like <laughs> <laughs> this really feels like if you like cranked a certain level that it like Andrew WK could then scream over this. And it'd be yeah, sick. I wanna I wanna party hard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like ultra minimalist uh, Andrew WK, but yeah, it, it's like so you know that's like one minute, a minute and a half, and then like seven minutes into this song, and it like just like kind of slowly develops. Um, so, you know, it's more of an experimental, like, composed piece, but I think it does give a kind of sense of the milieu of, of you know, experimental guitar rock that they were they were coming out of, uh, both Lee and Thurston. So that's lesson number one for like, guitar. I dig it. That's crazy that there's six of those guys strumming. It would be fun to see live, just six guys playing, like, very specific, like, written out, like, sheet music guitar parts and then one guy on a drum just banging away. I would like to see that. 
Yeah, there was um, a couple years ago when Red Bull Music Academy was still doing their thing. Um, they had the festival in New York and they got together 13 musicians it, it, and one drummer, Greg Fox from Liturgy. And they got like Bobby Reyna and um, Haley Four from Circuit to You and a bunch of other people to do Glenn Branca's symphonies like in the Masonic Temple on 23rd Ooh, Street. Nice. It cool. was one of the wildest things I think I've ever seen in my life. It was I mean, 13 guitarists is just <laughs> something yeah. else. But yeah, it was just it was just this amazing cacophony. I've, yeah, it, it was incredible. In a Masonic temple, that seems like one of the like maybe the perfect kind of place you could play this material. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I didn't even know that place existed. It was like totally hidden in plain sight right there. I know you, you have to like look straight up and you see the little uh, the sextant logo and you're like, oh. Masons right in the middle of Manhattan. <laughs> They're everywhere. I yeah. just haven't been looking. Yeah, exactly. uh, <laughs> the the loss of the Red Bull Music Academy is like such a bummer. I'm like, I don't know who what the budget sheet looks like at Red Bull where it's just like, come on, just like throw a little just carve out a little extra for all the billions of, you know, dollars you you earn on energy drinks. Like that shit was cool. Yeah, I did um I did some work with them kind of like on a contract basis, like for some of the festivals. And I got to go to the, the Montreal RBMA festival, which was incredible. Um, and really it, it was one of those things where, yeah, I don't, I'm, I'm so bummed that it's over now just because it gave way to so many incredible things. And there's just, I can't imagine the, any other place right now that has the kind of resources and the people to be able to pull off mm-hmm. something like that. Like, basically like the, in Montreal, like they built like recording studios and this like amazing space. And they just invited people from around the world who were musicians in a lot of different disciplines. Like, Hey, just like come record and hang out for three weeks. And your only obligations are to go to lectures uh, done by <laughs> Kenya Tagak and Iggy pop. Like that's pretty amazing. <laughs> yeah. So um, it was, yeah, it, it was really special. Um, I'm bummed that it's not around too. Um, it it sucks that it's just like one of those quirks of the like music industry and the way society is uh, set up that it takes some random soda company uh, to just like decide uh, that they want to spend millions of dollars to like I don't know let's th- throw in some uh like fly in some Tropicana uh, legends from Brazil to do a concert or like a symphonic concert in New York for no reason other than it makes the soda company look good oh actually we don't want to do it this year that can't happen. You know, ridiculous. Yeah. If oh. if only we had better infrastructure to make these things happen on a bigger scale and yeah. in an equitable way, that would be awesome. If only. If only. Imagine if your taxes went to that. <laughs> like that'd be that'd be so sick. <laughs> yeah, that'd be incredible. Oh man! All right, so uh, back to the youth. They they find their first drummer, uh, which is who's Richard Edson. Uh, Edson described an early jam session with Thurston Moore. Uh, that things got so intense that Thurston was like slapping his guitar and there was a piece of metal exposed on the guitar and like he had cut his hand and he started bleeding all over Edson's drums. And he said, uh, the motherfucker was bleeding on my drums and I didn't appreciate that, <laughs> which I, I just feel like, you know, that's that's Thurston's way. Clearly, he's he seems like an intense dude. Molly, do you know who Richard Edson is or went on to become? I don't. It mentions he's a character actor, but it would have particular resonance because last weekend we watched Ferris Bueller's Day Off. 
Sure did. He is the swarthy looking gentleman who steals the Ferrari for a joyride. <gasps> that's him. Are you serious? Yeah, that's what? the that's wow. the original drummer of Sonic Youth. Dude, that that's so amazing. Wild. Good career. Uh, yeah, and he's still working today. He's he's been a character actor for like 30 years. Wow, <laughs> I guess. And just played a little bit with Sonic Youth. I guess the first two drummers of Sonic Youth like went on to become actors because isn't Bob Burt in Desperately Seeking Susan? I think also? it's a, that's the same guy. Oh, it's the same guy. Sorry, yeah, yeah, yeah. I I totally got that mixed up. Yeah, no, I I watched that a couple months ago and it was it was very fun to find that connection. Yeah, uh, that's a great movie. Mm-hmm. It is good. I the thing that I appreciate most about Desperately Seeking Susie Susan. <laughs> That's really seeking Susan is the almost archival footage aspect it has of actual footage of the inside of the danceateria, uh, yep. which I, I don't I have no idea if that high quality of footage would exist without that movie. Yeah, right. totally. I think anything I've seen of the danceateria is incredibly grainy and great, but, but you just have to kind of like build around <laughs> the parts that you can't see in your imagination. So it is yeah. very cool to see those scenes in the movie. Sure. Yeah. Um, Glenn Branca has a new indie label and he tells Sonic Youth that they should record an album with him. I think it's called <laughs> it's called Neutral uh, Records, which I just search like search it on wikipedia to make sure that i had gotten that right and if you search neutral on sonic use wikipedia page uh it says that uh this article may be written from a fan's point of view rather than a neutral point of view <laughs> so whoever's manning the sonic youth wikipedia page like we have, to, uh, shout we have out. to eliminate bias in sonic youth journalism yeah it's got we got to find some objectivity there um, so they record uh, an album there, but they, they basically, it just sounds like they didn't quite know what they wanted to sound like. Uh, and they were just sort of like green in the recording studio. Um, and it really wasn't until they uh, Thurston Moore saw a minor threat show in 1982 that uh, he really was like, okay, Sonic Youth could like be something. Let's take it a little more seriously. And then I thought this was interesting. Speaking of patronage of the arts, the idea that like the hardcore DIY scene, which is very like community and cooperative, and they saw that in action versus the sort of patronage system of the art world which is what they were used to in new york city they found that attractive and we're like okay like that's something that you could potentially rely on which i i thought that was you know i clocked that <laughs> yeah and i think that that we'll see like is one of the one of the strengths that propels sonic youth among these hardcore bands uh into the like a successful jump to the majors is like being able to successfully weld kind of that like New York art self-branding mentality with mm-hmm. the, you know, industrious community spirit of the of the the hardcore bands that we've been talking about up to this point. Yeah, they they did have like some patrons though, right? Yes. Like that <laughs> that, that, that um would... that Swiss couple, I think. Yes. Uh, that was yeah. a, that was another big I would like to know more for me. Totally. Yeah, that that was just a couple sentences and that just like they got to go to their house in Lake Geneva across the street from John Luke Goddard. What? Like <laughs> definitely need an oral history of that too. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Also, yeah, like it's so funny that on one hand they're kind of like grinding it out, playing shows and practicing. And then they all have like day jobs. Like Kim works at uh Todd's coffee shop, which is like the iconic uh uh, you know, Xerox zone. But then, yeah, sometimes this Swiss couple like swoops in and like gives them a sick vacation. It's like very, very strange. I'm just, yeah, I'm wondering how the the wealthy, I, I mean, I assume that must be a Kim Gordon art world thing of like how these wealthy Swiss people like got to be in the same room with Sonic Youth and was like, yes, this this deserves our money. 
We'll, we'll yeah. give you guys a few thousand dollars to keep bleeding all over these drums. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think that's something that really is, you can't talk about Sonic Youth without talking about the art world because it seemed like those universes just collided at precisely the right time in New York mm-hmm. as well, like in the in the 1980s. I think Azarad talks about that um, and the fact that they played at the White Columns Gallery and all that. Um, I think that those intersections happened maybe because of that probably what i would say but i don't know yeah it seems like it's it's kind of if i'm if my knowledge of the downtown music scene uh serves it seems like you know those two things connected in the late late 60s with like the warhol factory velvet underground thing and then it seems like maybe in the 70s that 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 connection kind of strained a little bit especially when uh the rock scene got so much like purposely uglier and also more of a kind of caveman mentality once it's led by like the Ramones and the dictators and stuff like that. Yeah. I'm sure that our people were so fascinated by it, but then yeah, like it's weaved back together with the, um, you know, the no wave guys and people like Sonic youth and then like Basquiat and stuff like that. And TV party, my beloved TV party, which I always use as an example of, uh, you know, uh, creating your own media. (laughs) If no one else can support your media, I lo- love those folks. Um, yeah. So the uh, the the other I th- thing I wanted to note from the early Sonic Youth bit is that Azerat is saying that uh, unlike most hardcore kids, the members of Sonic Youth had firsthand experience of virtually the entire history of rock music, besides the uh, the like the early rock and rollers. And uh, uh, Lee Ronaldo said we had ties, real ties to '60s music in a firsthand way. But you didn't want to be associated with the excesses of hippie music. And I feel like we talked about it a little bit uh, in the last episode, but just the '80s relationship to the '60s is so funny because I feel like people both, it, obviously, the rock music of the '60s is so inspirational, influential. But then there was this weird sense of shame at the idealism. And the excesses of that same kind of music, but <laughs> versus like a 17 year old in a hardcore band, you know, Thurston Moore, or Kim Gordon had like listened to the Beatles firsthand as a kid and brought like a different perspective to it. Yeah. I, well, along those lines, one of the things that I thought was funny is that they're like, <laughs> you know, they're, they're, in a, a second, we'll talk about how they like tried to become like an inverse Creedence Clearwater revival for a second and like talk about that. <laughs> And, you know, it's like 1984 and they're like, we, we just wanted to be the dark inverse of everything idealistic brought around by CCR. And it's just very funny thinking, I mean, obviously rock and roll at that point, it's still a lot newer, but it is very funny thinking about that same, uh, you know, time difference and hearing like an avant-garde experimental rock band now being like, yeah, I was just looking back into rock history and decided that we needed to be the dark inverse of Icky Thump. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, who? I guess who would that be? I don't even know what that would <laughs> would be. Uh, the answer to that, and to who is that in Greta all cases Fleet? in two thousand twenty or twenty twenty one is um is the Gex is hundred Gex. Sure, they're they're the inverse of a lot of things, but I do think as, as the most uh, rock band of recent rock bands, Greta Van Fleet is doing something yeah different. Are they, are uh, they I mean, the most recent rock band of rock bands. Uh, that that just kind of blew me away. I think you might be right, but I never thought about it. Quite I'm just like trying that. to think of who, yeah, who else like really put forth the image of like we are guys and we have guitars. Because even <laughs> the people who are doing that now isn't quite like the 1975. I feel like that's not like quite the same vibe, or maybe it was no. in the beginning, but 
right. yeah, they're they're doing something some a little different. I don't know. I've, I just want a, a nice. <laughs> I always try to go to like rock band. when people ask like what's a rock band a, t- a p- big popular rock band today I'm always like I mean I don't know like 21 Pilots, 21 Pilots. maybe yeah. people like 21 Pilots right <laughs> I think so uh, sometimes when I look at the billboard charts I'm like I don't know who these people are <laughs> oh yeah 100%. I feel ancient <laughs> yeah we just we did a guest appearance on the Indie Heads podcast where uh, they went through the last decade, so two, 2010 to 2019, of the number one, am I getting this right, number one songs on the alternative chart? Yes. And it really is just kind of a, you, you sort of just see it, not, mm, I won't uh, comment on the quality, but it is definitely more of like, who are these people? <laughs> like yes. at the beginning, I'm like, I know who Foo Fighters is. And at the end, I'm like, I don't know who any of these people yeah, are. Yeah, a slow descent from thems to whos. Slow descent from thems to whos, exactly. Um, so... Uh, what are Sonic Youth doing? They are, they're playing cheap guitars. They're doing, uh, they're sticking drumsticks in their guitars. They're tuning them strangely. Uh, they're often taking 15 minutes or more to tune their guitars before they actually play on stage, which I just love the the visual of that, of just the, like this constant tinkering. Um, but yeah. they record uh, Confusion is Sex, and that's like their kind of first, what feels like an actual Sonic Youth record. Should we listen to something from Confusion of Sex? Yes. Do you have a favor from this one? I do not. Um, whatever you guys want to do. Um, I did want to touch on uh, when you were talking about the the cheap guitars and the yeah. the open tunings. Like I think something that is so interesting about Sonic Youth um, that I think speaks to a lot of art is how creativity just comes from circumstance. Like they were mm. playing, they were doing open tunings and you know, jamming screwdrivers into these guitars because they sounded terrible. And so they yeah. were like, if they sound terrible, then why don't we just fuck with them a little bit so that they could sound a little bit more interesting? Probably yeah. my favorite anecdote in this um, in this chapter is about the one where for Burning Spear, like Lee Ronaldo got a power drill and like put it through a wah-wah pedal, but then the power drill broke. And so the, the song like never sounded the same. And I just, <laughs> I, I love that idea that like, they just took something that was lying around and then it wasn't working anymore. And now like that song's DNA will inevitably be different. I just think that's, that's really fascinating. That's so good. Yeah. And a little later they talk about uh, like when they're trying to evolve their sound again, that they literally like destroy all their prepared guitars. So they literally could not play the songs the same way again. Also just the hassle of them. Not, you know, it's not like they have their one precious good guitar they have like a bunch of bad ones of just like the total like slog of having to drag them everywhere is so and and then of course methodically tune them is so funny to me i mean that's a perfect embodiment of kill your idols right like don't have any precious guitars like you're just mm -hmm. gonna mess them all up and then throw them around and and make something amazing with it and it'll never quite sound like that again yeah i think of that a lot just in the pure logistics of having to do gigs in new york as like a poor band in the early 80s where you have to bring 15 guitars to a show to do a gig like just even getting them around did they have like a hand cart they push them through the east village did they pony up and hail a cab uh these, these right. are the these are the details that like whenever i get a chance to interview artists i'm like all right so but like how did you get from avenue b to the to the uh to cbgb did you walk did you take multiple trips how, how did this go <laughs> 
Yeah, uh, that would that would be good to know because I, I think carrying 15 guitars um, in a walk-up apartment would be hell. And I don't know yeah. how anyone would do that. So, yeah. yeah. All right. So just so we can fully track their their evil Lucian, uh, let's nice. listen to a second of Burning Spear uh, off the first album just so we can hear how they start at the very beginning. And then I'll go on and do a little bit off Confusion to Sex. So here's Great. Burning Spear off the 1981 LP. episode is going to be a bit harder for uh, clips because everything obviously takes a little time to evolve obviously like back on the minor threat episode the uh, song would be half over by now it'd be over yeah See now, this is like the funkiness of the the no wave stuff. This this feels mm-hmm. very very no wavey to me, which I kind of like more of their early. like church bells a little bit before yeah. the power drill. Yeah, the, the just open ringing tunings of those, uh, those guitars. <laughs> Not even though I just read it and then listened to the song, I had not clocked that that is the sound. But that's the sound of the power drill through the wall. So that gives you a sense of this. So we don't have to listen to the whole thing. But that, also, I, mean, I hear all the me, elements, um, the vocals, the bass, the guitar, the power drill. The power drill. Yeah. It gives me, um, uh, you know, when they at the dentist, when they have the thing that sucks all the saliva out of your mouth, they're like, <laughs> oh, yeah. Someone should play one of those on an album. See, there's more music to, to discover. There are that, lots of dental tools that would be great in, in oh some no wave songs. Uh, I was going to say that on this listen, I've, it, like the thing that stood out the most to me was like it sounded a lot like ESG to me. Yes, like, yes, for yes. sure. Yeah, like who were coming, like, who were like around at the same time. So um, I actually don't know if ESG and Sonic Youth like ever played a show together. And I know that they played a show with Bush Petras, but mm-hmm. um, but it that really came through for me on this listen for sure. Yeah, I'm sure that they cr- cross path like same vague giant scene. Like all these mm-hmm. all these people were kind of playing together. So then a few years later, we get to Confusion of Sex, and then off of this, uh, let's just go with track one. She's in a bad mood. This is pretty representative of this. 
should say. TikTok this. I feel like this is <laughs> like I feel like TikTok music trends are so very like literal. Like anytime anyone like says something very specific, then people do the like pantomimes or whatever. I feel like she's in a bad mood. <laughs> Molly, really... you should do it. Oh, I'm starter yeah. of a new TikTok phrase. See, Molly yeah. has all these great TikTok ideas, but I insist but that I'm she's an not, ancient crone. Uh, not in the demographic. I want Molly to start a TikTok that is just TikTok ideas where she just suggests things that other maybe younger, more more adventurous TikTokers could do. I forget yeah, what some that, of your other good... That would take off really well with old millennials like me because I also don't <laughs> understand how to make a TikTok that is entertaining and good. So. Uh, I, I barely understand how to make a TikTok. That's Mo- This is the first system that I'm like, what is going on here? Molly, I'm, I'm really daring you on this episode, so it's in recording and we put it out, that you need okay. to start a TikTok called Conceptual TikToks, All where right. it's just you like listening to... I'm in a bad mood and while text goes around your house being like here's the head go uh, like here's the idea do a TikTok dance to the early Sonic Youth songs come on do it you cowards and that's the whole <laughs> that's the whole TikTok great I'll take you up on it anyway so yeah they're a, a little a little more like doomy and gloomy they've lost their like funk uh but have kept, like still amping up the like Sonic experimentations with the um with the guitar good it's cool yeah very very dark very intense very moody very moody but hey it, i mean i would say that this rocks more than the, the first one does if the first one funks this rocks sure i also kind of love that sonic you skipped uh th- i feel like there might be the first band in the book to skip hardcore entirely of just in terms of like playing things as fast as possible like they they didn't have to like uh, hit that particular mark, which I think is good. <laughs> yeah, people got tired of that pretty quickly anyway when they were doing it. Yeah, speed was never really the concern. I mean, it, there are so many of these songs like you, they take investment from you as a listener to like really sit there and maybe three four minutes, have, like before something like really starts to build, which. Um, which I think is uh, a pretty interesting approach and also one that requires a lot of patience. So, Yeah. <laughs> well, they got to do all that tuning first. Right, right. So while, while they're doing that, yeah, we're waiting. Yep. Yeah. Um, so the, that album comes out. Uh, I really love hearing about Sonic Youth in Europe because they also, I feel like, had the experience where they were kind of, they were maybe cool-ish in New York. Their tours sounded pretty miserable in the United States. It sounds like they were often playing to very few people. Um, but they go to Europe, and as uh, uh, Bert, their replacement drummer, Bob Burt, said, uh, you could say underground from New York, and the place would be crowded no matter who's playing. I just love <laughs> that you could just sort of export the sense of cool, even if you weren't totally killing it in New York and people in Berlin or whatever would just like freak out. I think that was so good. Uh, something that this uh, reminded me of is I've been fascinating with this phenomenon for a long time of a band being, you know, maybe having like a couple of fans like home in the U S but they go to, they go overseas, particularly the UK mm-hmm. and like tons of fans are there to greet them. And then when they come back, their stars like that phenomenon (laughs) of like you have to go across the pond and then come back to like get people in your hometown to pay attention to you is 
I don't know what that is or why that happens, but I, it's happened with Sonic Youth. It happened with the Yeahs. I think it happened with Trongbin, the band. Oh yeah. In in some ways, like they have a massive following overseas. Like before, they had like a big following here too. So yeah, I I'm curious what you guys think about that. It is it, it's like this this popularity gradient where, as Molly was saying, it's like when you go to Europe, you can just say like New York or, or the States is like a brand. We were just joking about this, how it was, it, it was so funny that in like the early aughts, you could say something was Trey Brooklyn uh, in in France. <laughs> and people were like, that was like a thing people said because like Brooklyn is, is such a brand already. But so you have that like popularity gradient where it's like, oh, these guys are from these guys are from the States. They're cool. And then you come back and you're like, oh, these guys are big in Europe. Europe is the yeah. cool place. It's a real it's a real good hack for a band i remember a bunch yeah a bunch of bands in meet me in the bathroom did it i think by the time like the killers came around brandon flowers was like okay there's a very clear pipeline here because i know like i i understand especially like in the uk i don't know if this is even true anymore i'm actually not really sure what the like british music press is like right now but they have so much more of a rabid and like comprehensive press system over there i mean even uh sonic youth said there that there was one of the a show that they had advertised to the press uh then they were forced to go on an hour early and then the press was there anyway and all of their equipment broke and they were just having kind of like a shitty show and thurston was screaming things like i hate the english and then they realized that the press was there and they were like oh god this is it's not going to be good. And then they got glowing reviews in enemy, which is like very, very classic, even better. Like go to England, insult the English and then become a star. But yeah, it's, I just, the idea that like you could play a show as a New York band and like get multiple people writing it up like immediately. Here's the pitch. You start a band in New York. Uh, you don't even write any songs. You don't, uh, book any shows. Uh, you just take a bunch of press photos and put together a press kit mm-hmm. and you send it to a bunch of places in Britain and say, we really want to come over and play, but we're booked solidly at all these shows here in Brooklyn. And then you send it to all these places in Brooklyn and say, we really want to play here, but we actually have all these gigs in the UK. And you just keep that cycle going for like two or three months and then boom, record contract. Ah, the old I'm wow. sleeping over at my friend's house. And yeah. they're sleeping over at their house. Right, right. <laughs> That one never got anyone in trouble, by the way. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's a that's a very good scam. So yeah, free free idea. Not not a free TikTok idea, but definitely a free idea. <laughs> full of free ideas this app. Yeah, we're full full of good ideas. Um so yeah, the Sonic Youth definitely like builds up a European audience, uh, but they also I think they just kind of feel like they're stagnating. They leave um, neutral records after a royalties dispute, which again, common problem in the eighties in the indie scene of just accounting practices, not maybe being totally above board, whatever. Um, And then they end up signing to a label that Gerard Cosloy works for, who was an old, I mean, talk about, I just said that basically nobody was going to a, a Sonic youth, uh, shows in the states basically the only guy who went to one of their shows in boston i think it was uh and yes boston and so he signed them to the record label that he was working for homestead records and uh they released their next album which is bad moon rising all right let's move on to bad, we, bad moon Ri- rising should we listen to this uh this dark americana this this uh exploration of what what if this country is actually 
bad. Yeah, I do want to say just to the thing about the tuning earlier that they specifically designed this album to incorporate the idea that they have to constantly be tuning, which is basically that every other track is a song and then the the uh, tracks in between are like guitar soundscapes to mimic the idea of in shows that they would develop this thing where like one guy would be tuning while the other person would just be fucking with his guitar to yes. make like a sonic uh, uh, escape. Anyway. It's clever, honestly. <laughs> here is Death Valley 69. in a movie ever. Would this be a great soundtrack edition? Uh, this would be a good drop. Uh, or even better, movie. a sad piano version for a horror movie trailer. Of course. Ding, ding, bong. Ding, 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 bong. It's funny that they describe uh, this the riff in this song as being like they thought it was a joke because it was like such a quote classic rock riff that's so funny no but this like it, I mean it's so interesting to track their career over their, their their sound over these few albums because you could just like it makes so much sense in retrospect but you could see like at any given moment they could have caught, gone any direction uh, but it is fun to just like hear them slowly congeal into these like more I don't know. I, I guess accessible seems kind of derisive of their whole thing, but you know they kind of congeal into more um, traditional, accessible, uh, recognizable. Maybe the best thing I can mm-hmm. say: uh, rock songs mm-hmm. uh, in a way that I find really interesting. The disaffected male-female vocal duo is always great. See also X. Mm-hmm. Or later, The Kills. Yes. Anyway. Jeff <laughs> This is maybe a, an out-of-pocket... Uh, association to make but I feel like they're you know with Bad Moon Rising and talking about you know the dark side of America and like obviously Reagan's coming up but then also thinking back to the 60s and uh, the Manson murders are they the true crime podcast of indie rock music (laughs) like whoa isn't it crazy like all this bad stuff happened at the end of the 60s like wow that's so nuts (laughs) It's either them or, like, the Misfits. Mm. <laughs> yeah, the Misfits would be more of, like, the Grizzly version of that. Yeah. Amazing. Uh, also, I feel like this is, l- listening to that tune in particular, like, this is around the time 
that in the book, uh, their minor threat was basically staging a U2 mutiny where everyone except for Ian McKay wanted to start getting more into U2. <laughs> and I feel like this is around the same time, maybe. And they're definitely like, not, not that I think that they sound like U2, but they kind of sound like super, super, like, what if U2, like, stopped giving a shit about anything? <laughs> Ni- nihilistic U2. Yeah, I wonder if U2 got really depressed. Yeah. Stop believing in in hope or the future or whatever. Um, no, anyway, I, I, you, yes. you were Molly. You were telling me yesterday something that I thought was like very funny. That how it, it's easy to take for granted now, but it, but it is like very modernly funny that that it was just like kind of a, such a revelation for all these people at this time of of being like, hey, what if America was bad? Yeah. Wonder if all the stuff that we t- were told was good was bad. Actually, what if it's Ooh. not mourning in America as Reagan so says it is? And there are all these uh, Grail Marcus quotes in there because, of course, they're New York art art people, so they're getting reviewed by like Art Forum and stuff instead of you know all the. Uh, I mean, in addition to all these zines like Maximum Rock and Roll and Force Explo- mm-hmm. Exposure, but I, you know, I know that Grail Marcus is a great writer, but a- a- out of context, all the 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 prose that he writes about them seems so flowery. It's very like within their being, they accepted a majesty that was in fact the negation, an anti of music of America. And I'm like, okay, calm down, Grail. <laughs> the negation. Oh man. I'm still thinking about nihilistic U2. I feel like <laughs> that would be such a good name for a band. Although you might get a cease and desist from Bono. So uh. yeah, maybe if you spelled it like, uh, like Mewtwo, the Pokemon, but you, you two, you two, stick you two. Yeah. You, you could get that going. Probably. Uh, Negative land had to deal with this problem in the eighties when they named an album, you two, uh, and then got sued by Bono. Is this what you were referencing Paula? I actually had no idea. About Negative that. land. Uh, named an album U2 and got sued by U2 and so had to change it to the story of the letter U and the number two. Oh, man. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> with a clip I did Casey not Kaysen. know that, that's but introducing them on case in point, I guess. Uh, wow. That's a good uh, record to look up. It starts with a clip of Casey Kasem introducing U2 on TV, uh, an outtake of them being introduced on TV. U2, I'm saying, these guys are from Britain and who gives a fuck? <laughs> <laughs> If only, if only. No, they'll be on your iPod someday. Yes, they're still they're still on our iPods. They're so. still on my phone. I have not. I know there's a hack. I just have not figured it out, and I really don't. I really don't care. Someday I'll be stuck without like any Wi-Fi or whatever. I'll be like, okay, <laughs> it's time to explore whatever that album was called. The uh, I mean, we don't even re- we don't even remember. It's right. we just know that it's on our phones. Yeah, that was yeah. crazy. <laughs> kind of amazing. Oh wow, that that was a good that was a good news cycle. Everyone was very very upset. Just so people don't yell at me online, I have to quickly correct myself. It wasn't the residents; it was Negative Land who had. Ah. Uh, and it is also. I just want to make it clear that it is not just some guy. It is Casey Kasem who's saying these guys are from England who, and who gives a fuck. Some guy. Some guy. Wow. I couldn't remember Casey guy. Kasem's name. I'm sorry. <laughs> couldn't couldn't be me. I'm fact checking myself in real time. I remember I the contours that. of that story. Yes. And that's all that that that's all that matters, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> um, anyway, so they yeah they put up Bad Room Moon Rising. They're also doing kind of more of a uh, like sort of networking schmoozing type of thing. Azarad notes that they 
Uh, they understand that press is the main promotional outlet for underground bands in the absence of substantial radio pl- airplay. So they are, um, you know, he, he says that if they're they're at a party and there's a journalist there, like, you know, they're going to go find them and, and hit them up and talk to them. Uh, they I think Thurston starts his own fanzine around this time. Um, and they just sound like both like very dedicated, uh, not both, all of them, dedicated networkers, uh, but also uh, tastemakers that in their sort of relentless boosting within the scene, then people start to look to them. And Azarad also accredits uh, the fact that they are a little older. They're from New York City. So, you know, maybe a little sophisticated uh, aesthetic type of people. And then uh, also cites that, you know, I think at this point, Thurston and Kim are married. So that having a couple within the band gives them a sense of like stability. So all of these things combined kind of gives them this like elder states uh, person status within the scene. Um, And of course, you know, every bands from Dinosaur Jr. to Nirvana are some of the the bands that kind of came out of their uh, internal promotion cycle. It's also interesting to note that Kim Gordon was born in 1953. Mm-hmm. So by time that like the second album is released, she's 30, which is, you know, funny because, the, you know, again, the minor threat guys who they were like seeing and being like, oh, damn, these guys rip are, you know, 18, 19 at the yeah, same time. So um, it, it is honestly like very surprising and admirable that they like ground through all this 80s like indie band stuff <laughs> at the ripe old age of 30 <laughs> right ancient <laughs> yeah um all right around uh this time which i think is like the mid 80s bob bird is out steve shelley is in um and i think he sticks around for a, a while yeah, he's, he's the the final drummer for them he's the he's the final the final boy azarad also is uh he says it's important to factor in with Sonic Youth, the cool aloofness that they presented, which I feel like we should talk about, that not only are they these sort of like elder states people uh, and, you know, uh, terminal networkers, they they have this like kind of cool aloof thing, which I feel like is one of the first things that I uh, noticed in them, like both as a band and as the way that they were sort of written about and sort of uh, mythologized, I would say. Um, And one... one, uh, example example of that is um an interview where they talk about an enemy writer who didn't believe that their version of i want to be your dog was sincere <laughs> uh ronaldo said they thought it, that was totally tongue-in-cheek uh, but it was gordon protested not totally ronaldo replied it was tongue more said settling it <laughs> i just feel like i'm imagining an interview with these folks and just like sunglasses on like sort of tapping at the door of uh their their real feelings yeah they're they're literally the uh the the cool people in the illustration on the cover of goo yeah uh it is funny because like i like i personally think everybody in this book is cool in their own way but they are the most (laughs) typical uh like cool kids in this thing i mean it's hard not to be when you come out of the the new york city art world um But it and it, I think it is like kind of easy to knock them that they were always just like kind of art world people who like you know almost did like hardcore uh, you know music drag. But you know they they did the work. They put in the tours. They they like grounded out as house painters for for a decade. They were they were did the same workman like stuff that everybody else did. It, it is funny that 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 specific specific New York flavor of networking where like they're still doing all the zines and stuff and and you know 
calling each other to figure out where, calling other labels to figure out where they can play and putting people up on their couches mm-hmm. and going and sleeping on people's couches. But something about it also taking place like adjacent to the New York art world kind of makes it feel in its own way like icky or pretentious compared to all the other hardcore bands of the of this time. Even if it is just like the fact that you can like go to where a journalist is nearby, <laughs> you know? Well, it, re- it reminds me of, I'm trying to remember which band this was. That had was it Miniman? So, someone said I. Did, I feel like people, or maybe it was Mission of Burma, that the these younger sort of maybe not as cool uh, bands when they come to New York, they it seems like they often have bad experiences because they're just creating a different vibe, like you know a bunch of kids in minor threat basically causing small riots within the stage rather than maybe the New York crowd, which is more of a folding your arms and kind of a gently nodding sort of people. Yeah. That's something I was going to say something related to that, which is, I think that something that is so specifically in New York is that you are cool only if you don't act like you think you're cool. Like there's like earnestness has to be totally removed from that or like any kind of recognition. And so I think that, um, I think that that probably played a role, um, consciously or not, that that's just kind of the way that people act. Um, but I think that it also comes across in the way that they play too. And I think that that also, mm-hmm. like there are bands that you see and just the joy is palpable when they're playing. And I don't know that I ever felt that way listening to Sonic Youth. Like it felt like they yeah. were working very hard and diligently at their craft and that is and like what they're doing is incredible but i don't know that they're particularly having fun while they're doing yeah, it yeah, yeah, yeah. i may yeah. i might be wrong about that but that's just that's just kind of my impression of of how that comes about especially with the aloof factor too it, it feels maybe instead of joy it's like it's full of intent yeah you know? that's a good way to put it that that everything is very specific and even in like the, the sonic chaos that it creates you know that, that everything is 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 very perfectly crafted and composed in a specific way. Like that fucking drill. When they lost the drill, yeah. they're like, well, we lost, we can't make that sound anymore. So that song's dead. Uh, <laughs> well, could you just use another insane sound? No, that was, that was drill number one. We can't do drill. We can't do the, the composition for guitar bass drum and drill again. No, the, the other, uh, yeah, I think difference, at least between the, the sort of hardcore and slightly post hardcore bands is like, I, I do think there's a difference between we don't really know how to play our instruments that well, but we're just going to play as hard as we can, as fast as we can, and like kind of do the best we can and make up for lack of talent with enthusiasm. And then you have Sonic Youth who's like, we are making up for lack of like cr- good instruments and, uh, you know, like a nice setup with just like total, as you said, Chris, intent of just like, okay, we're going to make this. We're, I know exactly what I'm doing with this drill. I know exactly what I'm doing when I'm sticking this drumstick like underneath the strings and then like breaking one and then it sounds kind of weird. I think, and that is cool. I think that's, you know, if we're trying to figure out what cool is, it's like kind of cool to be like, this is, this is what I'm doing and, and fuck you if you don't like yeah. it. <laughs> Yeah, making it play, being like, okay, the next song on the set list is Kill Your Idols, which requires guitar number three to open a tuning prepared with screwdriver. You know? <laughs> I would like to see if they have that written on a, yeah, on a they set kept list. Notes or, of like everything. Yeah, but it's sick. Okay, so they, they had gotten a boost of attention, uh, especially abroad, but they felt like they were sort of plateauing 
after Bad Moon Rising. And uh, they started actively campaigning to get signed on SST. And I guess uh, the one holdout uh, at SST in terms of people liking Sonic Youth was Joe Carducci. And legend has it that literally minutes after he left SST in 1986, uh, Greg Ginn called uh, Thurston and Kim and offered them a contract, which I think is really funny. <laughs> They're like, <laughs> okay, like, cool. The door is like closing on the SST offices and he's reaching for the, the phone. Who's got, who's got Thurston's number? Yeah, that's when I reach for my telephone. Telephone. Um, so yeah, they signed to SST, uh, evil is their SST debut, um, which we can definitely get into a tune or two from, from that album. Uh, Azarad says it's marked by an interest in like pop art and celebrity. So I feel like that's, that's sort of the, the next thematic phase of, of the Sonic Youth songwriting catalog. Uh, just speaking of the like, like pretension and aloofness. The evil thing where it's like, it's evil, but it's also love backwards, but it's also evolution is, you know, I, I generally think that they're pretty uh, aesthetically, I wouldn't say immaculate because some of these record covers from the, uh, from the <laughs> 80s are a little old, but the, the evil one is, is the one where I'm like, I personally, I'm like, all right, settle down, Sonic Youth. <laughs> anyway, uh, here's Expressway to Your Skull, which Neil Young would later call the best guitar rock song ever written. Just because this is a seven minute long song, I might have to, I'm gonna skip a little forward to get to some of the build up. It is, I guess it is kind of interesting to note, just speaking of the guitars, that this is kind of the, the <laughs> really the only band that we've covered to so far, uh, or maybe the first to like make specific use of having two different electric guitars, you know? That's a good point. Usually, 
It's been one guy doing a lot of work. Yeah. Uh, or maybe two guys playing basically the same thing. Or Mission of Burma covering up the lack of a second guitarist with a bunch of tape loops. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, the song is very is very powerful and epic and also foreboding and you know <laughs> just starting the song with the that long like we're gonna kill <laughs> the California girls. Very I mean they're still on their, their uh, Death Valley shit, but sure, it's sure. very good. Uh, you know, but again, another album, another just like slight step into a more like concrete in, uh, incarnation of, of, of what this like fully fledged band is going to be. Like it, it, uh, it's just very interesting to me that it always just keeps seeming like it's moving in like a, a linear direction. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, speaking of linear direction, it got them, uh, especially the SST kind of release and association, got them some more attention with mainstream music press, including getting uh, written up in People magazine, <laughs> who called the album the oral equivalent of a toxic waste dump, which was part of a positive review. <laughs> oh, I, I, I don't think it, it cited what writer was writing for People magazine, but just like, that's, totally. that's pretty funny to me. <laughs> especially, I feel like People in the 80s was even more like tabloidy then it like nine by the 90s it kind of chilled out a little bit but in the 80s i think it was a little more yeah spicy. i wonder if that's on newspapers.com it would be great to like go through and read the whole review <laughs> the people magazine review of uh of yeah evil i have to imagine it, it must have been like framed as maybe a joke where they're like what what if we just re- reviewed something really wild like as a joke and then gave it a i don't know gave it a positive. i wonder because I, I used to be a real uh, uh, like tabloid magazine girl again in high school. Lo- love me some magazines, but uh, the music section of people was always pretty weak, <laughs> which I don't think is their fault. But it would definitely be like whatever like Luke Bryan put out, like they would they would cover or like Adele for sure. But the idea of like a, a not even quite mainstream or not not. Uh, major label Sonic Youth release is just very funny to me. Someone must have just gotten their hands on a copy and was like, all right, let's just, let's get weird. I've got an inch of space on, on this paper. Yeah. I'm let's trying to look up who was People Magazine's Sexiest Man Alive in the year that this came out. But uh, all of these fucking ad blockers are making it very difficult. Well, the suspense uh, is uh, building yes. yeah. over here. <laughs> Much like people waiting for Sonic Youth to tune their guitars. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That would be St. Elsewhere's star, uh, Mark Harmon. Okay. Imagining the the write up of of the the likes and dislikes uh, and where where he would take you on a nice little date of St. Elsewhere's star, Mark Harmon, next to People Magazine's review of Sonic Youth's Evil. A cultural (laughs) relic. (laughs) <laughs> Qu- yes. quality media experience for everyone involved so yes uh each sonic youth record at this point was selling more than the last each was getting more praise and airplay than the last uh then came the album sister which uh was the highlight of which is that it, it cracked the paz and jop pole uh the crucial uh, the classic we love the paz and jop has that i'm trying to remember for me the last time that poll made news was when there was like a forum online discussing it and someone from pitchfork 
basically went on the forum under like an alias and was like, you stole like this is just the pitchfork end of year list and like kind of like caused a little bit of an Internet flame war. That's the last I remember hearing of like a a real thing from Paz and Jot. But I assume it's well, now it doesn't exist, does it? Oh, uh, the Village Voice. R.I.P. Village yeah, Voice. Yeah. R.I.P. Village Voice. They couldn't like export it to another thriving <laughs> down, publication. Download, <laughs> download to CSV. Uh, we should start it, Molly. Let's do a pass and job poll this year. Sure. We'll have to come up with a different, all, all kinds of ideas are coming from this, uh, this chat. We'll Surely have to come they up can. with another obscure and like kind of uh, quirky name that I feel like that's crucial. What if you do uh, pass and job on TikTok? Ooh. Yes. <laughs> pass and talk. Taz and Tom. The amazing ideas happening here. So far, this is our best step for for just your brainstorming. Yeah. It's that Sonic Youth inspiration uh, from their uh, sort of dark wasteland. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Should we listen to something from Sister? Yeah. Uh, Yeah, let's do it. Um, This, let's go with Schizophrenia. Just like their jangle pop album, you know? of chaos have become like so much more constrained that it's like approaching something that you would recognize as like you know, kind of grunge, uh, soft, mm-hmm. loud, soft stuff that would come mm-hmm. up, you know, immediately after this. Uh, off sister. 
the Kim Gordon uh, vocal delivery is so good. It's so it's so one of a kind. I mean, I feel like a lot a lot of people try, but that sort of like detached girl thing is so good. <laughs> I I feel like it's um like it's almost it's such a cliche, but she is a cool. Yeah, it's funny. It's not. It's you know she's I think one of the first women period in the in these bands at this point in the book and like Azura definitely clocks that and you know includes some quotes of her that are like again kind of cool of just being like I know who like I know what I am in this band like I'm not I'm not not aware of the fact that I'm a girl um and like I think it was actually around this point that she starts kind of like dressing a little more glamorously and like kind of playing that up because it works uh in terms of like the image of the band but yeah, she's just she she's a cool yeah. chick. We have to, we're gonna have to do another episode with her her book, which I've yes. read and is great. It's it's real good. That's where I feel like she gets to she gets to talk she gets a little to let, bit more. Let, let loose. Yeah, I would. I mean, I would love to to hear um like especially all this era from her pers- perspective, having read it through this because it is like as much as like you know I think Azarad's great and gives everybody their due in the in this book in a great way. There there are like some passages I think are funny where it's like trying to describe how Kim Gordon is, is like the perfect person to play bass. Like she, she basically says she like, she bases cool girly in a, that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're also, you know what I'm I, about? Yeah. yeah, for sure. Um, there was that detail, um, that came up twice that she had to fire Bob Burt. And yes. Af- yes. after Thurston was like, he can't be in the band anymore. She had to fire Bob and then she had to ask him back. Yes. And, and so I'm like, why was she like, why did she have to do that? Like, why she, is she HR? What the yeah, fuck? Exa- exactly. <laughs> of Sonic Youth. Exactly. Like, I got, I haven't read Girl in a Band in a couple years. So I, I actually don't know if she talks about that um, incident in the book, among other things. But I would be mm-hmm. very curious to hear uh, what that story was like from her perspective. Definitely. Uh, it, yeah, again, I think that um, Ezra is, is very like, generous and humane to all the subjects in in this book it, it is just very funny too uh funny in its own way to to, to see how he, he he tries to be in, in humane about that uh, like her being the girl in the, in the band and i would love yeah to cross-reference the the like writing him in this and other uh testaments to sonic youth with her version of it and then yeah. maybe we can go back through that that wikipedia article and check it for neutrality or if it's displaying <laughs> fan biases sure sure <laughs> very very important get the wikipedia squad on there um yeah the so uh you know they had campaigned really hard to get on sst and then um kind of got disenchanted with sst they again noticed some suspect accounting and then were also unhappy with like sst firing employees that they like they feel like they didn't really know like what was up in the office and then also uh, it just sounds uh, damn like it. it it's it sucks that sometimes you gotta kill your idols oh wow oh he said it he said (laughs) it went there (laughs) um and then also the it sounds like at this point ssc is putting out a lot of product and that is maybe diluting the brand which is something that sonic youth is aware of as a as a thing that is important in the, the the being of a uh music group so they. I, uh, I thought yes. that that was an, just an interesting one-off detail because it made it so much instant sense for me, just from what we know about like Greg Greg Ginn and how they mm-hmm. like operated, that I could very easily imagine a guy like that getting into a mold of like 
you know, SSD is on speed. It's doing well. They're releasing stuff. They've created this system. And, and he's like, great. We did 40 albums last year. We can do 60 albums this year. Great. We did 60 albums last yeah. year. We can do 80 albums this, this year. And people are like, well, do we have 80 good albums to put out? And he's like, doesn't matter. We'll find we, it. We can. We can do it. We can do more. Yeah, especially since like at the beginning of the 80s, there was definitely a vibe of like, uh, oh, I may, man, I really want to put out your album, but like we literally don't have the money. So yes. like, let me shunt you off to someone else who just started a label or perhaps you could start your own label. Uh, but yeah, that at this point, the the success is maybe then sort of taking away from that SST flavor. Yeah. Um, and so they're also, they're, they're kind of, they're looking to level up again. I think that's a, a hallmark of Sonic Youth's career is that they are never content to just like chill at one particular level. And so they have a UK label called Blast First. Blast First struck up a relationship with Enigma Records, which is a West Coast record label, which was distributed by Capital and half owned by EMI, <laughs> which puts them within spitting difference of uh, the, yeah, this is where I'm like, I would love a business, even an associate's degree, you to pull, understand the distribution yeah, of Yeah, you gotta pull records. down the wall chart that shows that it's all owned by the Florsheim Wig Company. Right. <laughs> exactly. Um, so yeah, now, now they're kind of in they're in the zone. They're they're sniffing out the uh, the majors and uh, signing with um, Enigma. They put out Daydream Nation in 1988, which hey. is you know by by all accounts just seems like it was basically an instant classic. Um, so should we should we uh, play some tunes from that John? So obviously the one to go to here is Teenage Riot. Uh, but Paula, this was your your driving around Houston album. Do you have uh, maybe something more sophisticated or or to your, pa- your, your <laughs> oh. one of your palettes that you would uh, like to to request? Put me on the spot. Um, <laughs> I was actually going to say Teenage Riot, but I mean let it's me... really fucking good. Hey, we, can, we, great, we, but... we can obviously listen to more than one of these. Let's put put on some Teenage Riot. Okay, we'll I'm it. gonna I'm looking at the track list again to get the right one. <laughs> and I just want to like. Just immediately as this comes on, just going all the way back to that Glenn Bronca track, track and thinking about how that started. And it's yeah, like yeah, all yeah. right here, you know? Yeah. Thank you. 
eat, but not, you know, just gotta hear not too obnoxious about it. I want to hear him say about the, the teenage ride to get him out of bed. <laughs> I might be pissed into it now. I don't remember the song. The, the song. Um, yeah, I keep saying versions of this, but tracking this band from its very beginning to something like this, which is like they're you know they're very through pop rock record. It is. It's. I just think it's one of the clearest trajectories that you can see that they had to go through all of that other stuff to make a song like this rather than like starting at something that sounds like quote unquote normal and then moving towards something more experimental but that's what makes the quote normal sounding song so good that it had to come from this like vast cos- cos- uh, cosmology of a noisy experimental weirdness and then just get honed over decade into this like sharpened point of, of powerful rap. Susan Moore's vocals are so funny as well. Like, everyone's just so chill. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Uh, you, you just, like, I mean, they're obviously, it's obviously, like, very hard, but you're just kind of, you know, with all, like, the the open, the weird open tunings and the, the, the strumming, you're just kind of, like, borne along on this stream by it. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, you're just, like, soaring, soaring with them the entire time. There's something so uh, so smooth about about. They're uh, they're playing style on songs like that, or even something a little later, like "Cool Thing," which I feel like is the '60s influence in a low key mm. way of uh, kind of t- yeah, taking you from one one suite to another mm-hmm. uh, without having it be super obnoxious. They were they were alive during the '60s. <laughs> the entire history of rock music can yeah. be seen in in Sonic Youth <laughs> songs, maybe. Yeah, yeah, maybe not entire, but yeah. some some part of. Rock history can be seen in Sonic Youth. Sure. Well, yeah, yeah. you got to you got to take it all apart and then put it back together. And mm-hmm. that, that really feels like what what the the story of this band is in, in a their own put specific it, way. Put it back together using a using a power drill. Yeah, but using power drill. <laughs> have you <laughs> have you tried taking apart and putting it back together again? <laughs> I'm trying to remember. I feel like there might have been a little blurblet in this chapter about the idea of being industrial because that is you know what obviously industrial became or was sort of happening alongside Sonic Youth is a bit different, but you can't deny that using a, using power tools is l- quite literally industrial. I mean, they had to carry around a toolkit to their shows probably, <laughs> right? Like oh, yeah. along, along with 15 guitars, it's like, let me get out my hammer and my power yeah. drill. And I got all these <laughs> screwdrivers for guitar number seven. Uh, <laughs> they should have had like a ladder just for like aesthetic, like just got get up on the ladder, like tune the guitar, like get oh, back that would have been ladder. such a good gag. That's a well, good bit, yeah. Man. Uh, save that kind of thing for next week, the butthole surfers, of course, because <laughs> they do do stuff like that. Yes, uh, yes. Gibby, the yeah, Texas Gibby. boys, yeah, the Texas yep. boys. 
I wanted to actually ask Paula because I, I had someone in my DMs today, a listener of the show, being like, okay, I got to ask, who'd you get for a guest for Butthole Surfers? Are they Texan? And I was like, I'm sorry, they're not. But we do have a Texan on the show for Sonic Youth. Do you, uh, while you're here, do you have any Butthole Surfers uh, intel, feelings, previews, anything like that as a, a, a local Oh, uh, man. Well, neighbor. I... Well, first off, I'm I'm excited for the Butthole Surfers edition uh, of this. I'm going to reread the chapter because they're just, I mean, even in Texas, like they're, they're our band, but they're still so shocking in so many different <laughs> ways. Um, and yeah, like I, I don't know that I can encapsulate the Butthole Surfers right now. Um, they're just, uh, they're just uh, the Butthole Surfers, you know. So I, I do like that it's it's your it's your state's band, but then also the idea of claiming them is like, whoa, really? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I these still, are our guys. Are they our guys? I still read I read stories about them sometimes. I'm like, oh my god, <laughs> like I can't believe <laughs> they did that. Like, wow, just truly, truly one of a kind. There is something very, and I will say this now because you know we have a, a Texan with us. Is that I got, there is something very specifically like Texan sl- Texan flavor to their sleaze mm. uh, that it just has the, this kind of like, I don't know, um, um, you know, rodeo esque clownish clownishness <laughs> to it. A uh, little, you know, a little Southern friedness to, to, to them that almost like, yeah. a, they're like, a, like a Texas jackass or something like that. That's yeah. I could see that. I feel like there's the, dis- one of the distinctly Texan things about the butthole surfers too is, the distinctly Texan attitude of fuck you. I'm going to do whatever I want. Yeah. Like it's very like people, the the great like contradiction about Texas is like people here are so friendly and welcoming, but you have to kind of accept people where they are. Like it's, mm-hmm. it's kind of like it, there's, there's kind of an understanding there that happens. Um, I've noticed, but it is like, people are very outspoken and they're going to do whatever they want. And, uh, you know, you can uh, you can go to Oklahoma if you don't want to be here. <laughs> <laughs> yes, no, it, it makes it, like butthole surfers have to come from Texas. There, there's no way that the butthole surfers could have been from Oklahoma. Mm. Uh, mm. But we'll talk more about the butthole surfers next <laughs> week uh, to finish up the Sonic Youth story. They've they've gotten uh, they've gotten teenage dream out. Now they're they made it onto the majors. Yeah, so they that that was their like taste of the majors with the distribution through EMI and uh, as Azarad acknowledges, uh, the indie scene wasn't wasn't an alternative network of dedicated music fans anymore. It was now just another industry looking for increased market share and not doing it very well. If that was the case, Sonic Youth figured, why not work with people who knew what they were doing? Uh, among others, they consulted Bob Mould on how to negotiate a major label contract that had some creative control reta- retained. So there have been some other people who've done it at this point, jump from the indies to the majors. Um, and then they signed with Geffen and their first major label album was Goo in 1990. And this is where Azred leaves uh, the band because uh, once once you sign to a major, you can no longer be written about in the pages of our <laughs> band and be your life. Uh, unless you fail at it, like the like the Huskers do. Sure. Yes. And then you get yeah, you get a, like an epitaph of sorts. Yeah. You know something something that might bridge the gap between this and the present day that I was thinking about leading up to this conversation was, and and Azarad makes this point that they were one of the 
few bands that managed to do this successfully. Like they yeah. signed to a major label, but they still had the respect um, of their peers and they had that pedigree um, yeah. of being very into hardcore and, and being like very much like a fixer almost of all these bands and like putting people up um, and being very ingrained in the community. Um, and I was wondering when did people stop calling each other sellouts? Because I remember mm. like anecdotally, like I grew up in the nineties and the early two thousands. And I remember that like being called either a sellout or a poser was just about one of the worst things someone could say. Yeah. Um, and now you don't really hear that anymore. I think because we have maybe accepted that we are all, uh, one with these um yeah. so I, uh, for for those not watching uh she held up a phone oh right right yeah <laughs> we're uh, <laughs> yeah so i i'm curious like you know sonic youth being able to bridge that is very interesting but i think that now that that conversation maybe wouldn't have been as much of a big deal as it was back then or i don't know so i'm curious what you guys think of that yeah, I I don't know personally like how, you know, if there was like ba- written backlash for them in particular because they were, you know, 1990, they were a year before the Nirvana breakthrough. And I feel like that was more it, it, almost like Nirvana being a thing than people are aware of this whole like prior history of people kind of sweating it out in the indies for like a decade and I don't know. It seems like they are they just so cool that they just kind of like got around it. I think you could maybe say like tell a couple of different stories is that like the sellout thing, you know, it is has kind of like always been there in, in rock music, but has always kind of been a joke in a way mm. that like to, to, to do it forever, basically at any kind of sustained level, unless you are a very, very special band who can like ma- manage a bunch of different like sliders exactly right between like maintaining your personal connections and maintaining a fan base and having consistently good output and like Mm -hmm. being able to tour well together for like decades like you either like are that one perfect band or you sell out and become like actually successful or perhaps there was like about a five or six year period here where things went insane starting around with sonic youth and ending you know maybe in around the mid 90s after like the real like riot after Nirvana hit Mm -hmm. uh, where bands could like credibly do this. And then people got a little more skeptical of it or perhaps Sonic youth were in fact the only band to ever jump from (laughs) Indies to the majors without ever being credibly called sellouts. Well, not Mm. only that, but I, I think it was Bruce Pavitt who said that they were the only people to do this and leverage those connections without burning any bridges. That is, that is wild to me. Like, Mm-hmm. the fact that you could be you could be doing so much and yeah that that's just incredible to me yeah it's yeah. It, well it seems and Azarad mentions this a few times that they are they were legendarily respected for never closing doors behind them like whenever they had success that they would bring people with them or like they always like were very conscious of like who got to open for them and like would invite people that they had previously worked with and you know even as they were becoming more successful maintaining those relationships through like the zines and the touring that, that Thurston was doing. So it seems like they had like a, a genuine, genuine gregariousness in both their affection and like literally the material success to people that, that really benefited them. But also, you know, well, in a way it's like they didn't benefit from being the first because who's Gurdue 
of yeah. these bands were the first, and they kind of collapsed under the pressure. But in that way, they got a door open wide enough that Sonic Youth could do it kind of like the most competently and stick the and be the ones to stick the landing. Uh, and in that way, like because they were the first to to do it and stay afloat and stay a real band, they got the goodwill. And then maybe every single other band that did it after them were, uh, you know, sell sellouts and posers and betraying their their hardcore roots and uh, you know, betray, uh, turning their backs on the scene. But no, the, the Sonics, the Sonics youth, they they did it right. The other, you know, the we have to of course note the ghost of uh, REM that haunts this book. Oh where yes, yes, yes. They signed to. Warner Brothers in 1988 and so maybe they just like took the heat off maybe that that uh transition just sort of overshadowed the idea of of uh Sonic U- or and also I think maybe the New York location had something to do with it where it maybe just wasn't as much of a surprise aesthetically for a New York band to seek out a, something more mainstream or seek out a larger audience considering they live in the the largest yeah because all, all those like CBGB bands a generation before had gotten a shot at the majors, talking heads, remote sure. and stuff like that. So, yeah, you know, maybe that the More geographic precedence. I was yeah. thinking earlier when we were talking about the, the artistic thing uh, or the, you know, the aloofness artistic thing, it always must be considered that New York is of course the irony city. So everything that you've done here can be done here can be done with like a, a little bit wink, of a wink. wink. Yeah. A little <laughs> wink. We're, we're going to the majors, but not really, but like kind of, yeah, actually, but it's okay. Cause we're ironic. The Lucille Bluth uh, winking at the uh, medication. <laughs> oh, R.I.P. Justin yeah. Walter. <laughs> oh, incredible. Uh, I put on Arrested Development basically as soon as that announcement was made. It was just like, God, this is such a watchable show. It's, every every minute in it is good. I got to so do rude. a rewatch. It's been years. Oh, it's oh, incredibly worth it. Um, so good. So that's the end of the 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 Sonic Youth chapter. Uh, Paul, is there any other? Are there any p- other Sonic Youth points or thoughts that you have, or, or you know, anything from from past this era that you would want to talk about? I think we covered almost everything. I think maybe the last thing, and maybe this is a good point to end on, was I think Azarad says early in the chapter that uh, one of the great powers of Sonic Youth was the fact that they were more an inspiration than an influence, uh, yeah. which is maybe why, despite their renown, so few of the bands who cited them as mentors and heroes have directly copied their sound. And I mm-hmm. think that that's, that is such a fascinating, wide-ranging legacy for a band to have. It's not the sound that you're emulating, but it's the attitude. It's the idea mm-hmm. that you don't I mean, none of these people are traditional or classically trained musicians, but they're doing it anyway. They're being incredibly inventive under the constraints that they have. And Mm -hmm. I think that that's a model for so many different kinds of art, not just music. Uh, Yeah, for sure. and they and the very final words they uh you know as Molly alluded to at the beginning, they kind of twist that around and being like at around this time, you know, the interviewers would be like. how you know? How did you, how do so many bands call you call you an influential? And and they're more like, well, that's not really about our music. Don't you want to ask questions about the music? And like, no, no, no. We want to ask why you're so influential to 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 people. But in a way, you know, the the way that you just brought up that quote, being an inspiration rather than an influence, is like maybe the best one of the best legacies that you can have because that's how I found them. That's yeah. that's why the the aura of them as like influential band, like legendary band got otherwise i don't think i would have paid attention to him in quite the same way like that that uh 
refrain was so loud that I was like, well, I gotta, I gotta listen to Sonic Youth. You like, just gotta see what's up. Yeah. They, Before I knew what they sounded like. Of, of all the like quote unquote cool bands, let's say since like 75, since like punk became, started a, a, a true like, I mean, I don't know. You could go back to like uh, Elvin Underground or whatever, you know, like of all the underground bands, one of the most consistent ones that you like, you gotta listen to is probably Sonic Youth. And that's a, because they were one of the ones to to do cool the best. Mm. I think I think you're right. <laughs> you gotta. You gotta. Um, Only well, if you wanna. We <laughs> <laughs> <But you> should. <laughs> That's my blurb for their uh, yeah. their CD jewel case. We'll smack that on a jewel case. <laughs> you gotta. Yeah. Put that on a shirt. Uh, <laughs> well, if, unless anybody has any other Sonic Youth thoughts, uh, time to move confidently into the end part of this episode i just have one aside that i do have to get on the pod because at this point we we stocked up a bunch of these and have started releasing them and so i do want to address a few uh listener notes Mm -hmm. uh and the only listener note that i want to address on this episode i'll probably come up with some other ones later is from my mother who wanted (laughs) us to tell any of you the listeners who've been listening to this entire series that if you listen to the mission of burma episode and we have great fun speculating around the bizarre or the seeming to us bizarre like $300 anywhere in the country as long as the flights out of Atlanta ticket uh, mm-hmm. my mom and dad got that ticket deal uh, that the mission of Burma used to tour through the country through the yes. Atlanta hub airport where they spent $300 to get like 10 flights over the course of two weeks to various points in America so I, it's I like was, the Ural pass, but, but it's, for flying, but only through flying out of Atlanta, but only Atlanta. Wow. Uh, I'm and only so in mad. The early eighties. So I do like to imagine my mom and dad uh, having their like nice uh, little thrifty trip to um, you know Southern Florida, uh, passing a bedraggled uh, mission of Burma, coming back from their like tenth tour date in nine nights, <laughs> also through the Atlanta <laughs> airport in like 1981. I uh, wanted to relay that anecdote on. Uh, but that's the only listener note that I that is to me worth considering. Yes. Uh, well, now anyway. we have to now we have to know where they went for for all those trips. Any highlight? Uh, I, yeah, I, I could look it up. They went to like uh, like again like Florida and like maybe like Myrtle Beach and like maybe one of the the, the Caribbean islands. Yeah, I think they maybe went to Barbados. Uh, something. It like was that. like I was shocked. I was just like I can't believe you could go outside of the the contiguous states like this is truly a deal we are great we are deal truly all being those... robbed in our current status yeah. of airlines bring uh, it back deals yeah yes i mean the a... air the airlines want people to fly like this is a perfect look yeah. just adding yeah. to all the good ideas we have here so right many now. bring back the burma deal bring back the mission of burma deal <laughs> bring uh, back all the, the 300 dollars deal yeah all oh, the God. places she went were like the places that you would win a trip to on the prices right <laughs> uh, which i you know i say it's you know, that's a vibe sounds it sounds lovely um that sounds great yeah paula thank you so much for joining us is yes. there anything that you would like to plug i'm stunned by this question um <laughs> you like can also what? pass on it i like I, like like what like what the what writing the texas plug? monthly uh your twitter uh oh okay right um yes i would like to plug um our latest issue of texas monthly the april 2021 issue um honors selena quintanilla Ferres on what would have been her 50th birthday of uh, she would have been 50 in mid-april and we put together this beautiful package of stories written by a uh, different uh, writers who are texans who came up in a generation of latinos and latinas who 
uh, were, you know, very young when Selena passed away or not born yet. So talking about her, how her legacy extends to different generations. Um, I wrote one of the stories in the feature and edited all of them besides that one. And I'm thrilled with how it came out. I think the art is just completely stunning. Um, and we have the stories online in English as well as Spanish. So awesome. Yeah. That sounds awesome. Uh, I will send it to you after this. Yeah, um, I will put I oh, put that in yeah. the show notes. That sounds like a really, really interesting package. Isn't there a new like movie or Netflix? TV show, Netflix show coming out series? about her as There's well? There's a the Netflix series, um, it's a two-parter. The first part came out in December, um, and the second part is coming out, I think, sometime later this year. So yeah. Okay. Because I, I knew that some something else was coming out, but that mm-hmm. the, that package sounds great. Um, obviously, a very fascinating cultural figure and Texan <laughs> figure specifically. Mm-hmm. Uh, we will have to cover her on the show one day, and perhaps when we do, we will come back and maybe we can even go off the the, the this Texas monthly package in general to talk about her. Yeah, let me know. Sounds great. Oh, yeah, <laughs> great. Uh, otherwise, I don't think I have anything specific. Molly, do you have anything specific to? Uh, um. To plug? I- I would say I, I will continue to plug the video series that I've been doing for The Alternative. The last interview, uh, the series is called The Details. I interviewed Lyndon Rook about her incredible album, Manic Pixie Dream Star. I think I shouted it out on a past episode, but it's truly amazing. If you like pop music uh, and you're like, what is the future of pop music? You should definitely listen to that album. That is my only plug. You don't even have to watch the video. Just, just listen to the album. Okay, that's it. Uh, I will do one special plug I can't remember if I've done on the show yet. Uh, I created a Reddit for the podcast it, where I've been posting link a subreddit for the podcast where I've been posting links uh, and episodes there, um, related links, a lot, lot of live clips of these bands playing. Just it's, I've been using it as like kind of a clearinghouse to just post stuff related to the show that I find while I've been putting together these episodes. Uh, you know, it's reddit.com slash r slash and introducing if you want to go there, talk, you know, comment on the episodes. Uh, you, you know, that's a good place to tell us where we need a better framework to talk about uh, punk rock. <laughs> Sorry, that one person who's betw- who tweeted at us specifically. Uh, I, I don't mean to single you out. I just uh, thought that there was a funny com- uh, comment. Um, but We're all looking for a framework well, in life, you know? The th- Molly and I's true cur- curse is that we are both people who do read the comments. So I we figured do. I'd finally just put a place for any anybody out there who actually listens to this and desires to comment on it. it exists now it's r slash and introducing uh so that's my big announcement otherwise you can send us an email at and and introducing pod at gmail.com uh our twitter is at and intro pod our soundcloud is as always at soundcloud.com slash and dash intro dash pod uh rate and review us on itunes and leave a message uh go to or leave a rating and review start a teenage riot uh in the uh review section uh oh and start your own band yeah start yeah. your own band start your own band and t- send, send us their music maybe we'll play it on the show i can't make any progress promise about that that sounds like one of these things that i'll say here and suddenly i have 40 people emailing me about their bands uh <laughs> anyway uh this has been Another episode of We Podicano next week, back to Texas. First for our guest, and now for the Butthole Surfers next week. Uh, see you then on and introducing. <laughs>